When I was growing up, my dad was like Superman. He wasn't afraid of anything. And then as he became very frail, it really broke my heart because he was that guy. Hi, I'm Bobby. I'm a certified caregiving consultant and a certified caregiving educator. I lead a caregiver support group in my community, and I've worked in the caregiving world for the last 18 years. And I'm her husband, Mike, and I'm a certified caregiver advocate. And this is Roger That, the podcast dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. Here, we're gonna focus on the caregiver, offer practical insights, and share some emotional support. And maybe even we'll share a laugh or two, and we all know that laughing is, in fact, the best medicine. And don't forget the wine, Mike. Oh, no, I'll never forget the wine. Today, we welcome uh, Grace Whiting. She's the president and CEO at the National Alliance for Caregiving. Prior to being CEO, she served as the chief operating officer in the advocacy and communications team. She is a lawyer by background and previously worked in advocacy and communications roles at Leaders Engaged on Alzheimer's Disease and the Alliance for Home Health Quality and Innovation. Welcome, Grace. Hi, Grace. Good morning. I'm so excited to talk with both of you today. And we are really excited to have you here. I know that when I first entered the caregiving world, when Mike's dad came to live with us, um, I didn't know what resources were out there for caregivers. And now having been in this world, I recognize that there's more and more support. Um, can you tell our listeners what the National Alliance for Caregiving does? I'm happy to. We are based in the Washington, D.C. area. And our work is really to advocate on behalf of family caregivers and the people they're caring for. And we do that work across the lifespan. So it's not just conditions of aging, such as dementia, but it's other conditions as well, cancer, rare disease, mental illness, injury. And the way that we advocate and tell our story is we conduct public policy research with other nonprofit organizations. And we do grassroots advocacy training and assistance. And then um, we do, in addition to research and advocacy, we do some global engagement. So we talk with people on Capitol Hill, and we also talk to our colleagues around the world who are working to provide better services and support to caregivers. Yeah, the caregiving world is, is huge. Now, we focus primarily on the many forms of dementia, but caregiving like there's traumatic brain disease, there's cancer, there's there's all kinds of issues. And while some of the behaviors might be different, a lot of the concerns are the same. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, and you know, when we think about the caregiver as a whole person, they need, you know, accommodation at work if they're working. They might need social support from their friends and family and an opportunity to feel less isolated. They may need um, other types of supports that are going to be the same, whether you're caring for a child with a disability or an older person with dementia or a partner with cancer. I think one of the challenges that's specific to dementia is there's an additional grieving process that a lot of caregivers go through as that person may be losing their memory. So you have a sense of anticipatory grief of you're worried about what's going to happen which is common in a lot of different types of caregiving. But you also have this sense of, of loss 
and sort of this realignment of what your relationship is with that person. And then as they move into the advanced stage of illness, you experience that loss again. Um, so I, I think that makes dementia particularly challenging, not to mention the stigma and the misunderstanding in many cases around the disease that people may encounter in their community or their social circle. Um, somebody just happened to mention on one of the uh, social media sites for caregivers um, how frustrating it is when people tell, say, well, you still have your mother. And she said, no, I lost my mother. She's my, my mother's gone. The mother that I knew was gone. And it's also been called the long goodbye because it's a long, you know, they slip away day by day, moment by moment. And grueling, it, grueling. Absolutely. I, I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, I think it's hard for people to understand that. I think about, um, I had two grandparents that had dementia and my grandfather, um, brilliant man, him and my grandmother had been not just partners in life, but also business partners. And they were both accountants, very, you know, sort of regimented people and uh, very organized. And I remember as a kid, I, my, my grandparents' house was always fabulous to me. So they're in Texas and they had, you know, they had the big chandelier over a giant bathtub. And every time we had breakfast, we drank orange juice and stemmed glasses and you know, and it turned out that my grandfather was really the one that was sort of pushing a lot of the fancy things. And so, like, every time we had dinner, we'd have a three-course meal, and they would set the table, and they would do, like, a full table setting. So I remember the last Thanksgiving when we were with our whole family, and he um, had set the table, and he got the spoon and fork misplaced on all of the settings. And it's small, right? It's It's not that's not going to be the most intense thing you encounter when you're caring for someone with dementia. But that change in relationship was extremely difficult for my grandmother to be able to manage because this was a person who had been her partner in business who thought very similarly to her. And now that relationship had gone from being a spousal relationship to one where his voice wasn't always as loud and she was really advocating for him. And I think that's one of the unique things about the caregiving journey for dementia is that you want to be a care partner, but sometimes it's difficult to maintain that equal balance of decision-making. I can certainly relate to that. I know my dad, when I was growing up, my dad was like Superman. He had everything except the cape and the big red S on his chest. And he was he was not a, a big man. He was short, but he was very muscular, but he wasn't afraid of anything. He would walk anywhere through whatever bad area and never bat an eye. And he was just that guy that was just so strong and so virile. And then as he got diminished with the dementia, he became very frail and um, scared of everything. He... He was afraid of dogs. He was afraid of walking, crossing the street. And uh, to see that diminishment, it, it really broke my heart because he was that guy. And, and that's part of, part of the difficulty in, you know, being a caregiver for a spouse or a parent, because we had these relationships with them that defined who they were and who we were to them. And then all of a sudden that person isn't there, but you kind of expect them to still 
be that way. Right. And and they're not. And it's devastating. And sometimes it it makes you angry. You know, where, where is this person I used to rely on? And, and the relationship with my husband is gone. So yes, absolutely. Um, Grace, one of the things that, um, I really feel that we're kind of letting caregivers down is support for caregivers in the workplace. Is there anything that through the, uh, what your work you're doing is reaching out to, um, employers and working with them on finding ways to support working caregivers, because many of them can't leave their jobs to take care of the person that needs care. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's an excellent um, question. And if I may, Bobby, you know, when, as you were talking about this role of anger, I think that actually, this is going to sound silly, but I watch way too many movies. (laughs) I'm 20 years late. I'm getting into the Sopranos, but I was watching the Sopranos and it's, if you're not familiar with it, it was an HBO show about essentially a modern day monster. Well, with a name like Carducci, we certainly watched <laughs> we certainly watched the Sopranos. <laughs> well, I was just what I was shocked by, and maybe this is just by virtue of being engaged with caregiving, but I there were you know, in the beginning of the show, his mother has dementia and mm-hmm. she's got a lot of anger. And, um, of course, being a mobster, he's taking out out at work in inappropriate ways. So I certainly don't advocate that anyone (laughs) become a mobster to deal with their feelings. But I think um, I think it is really hard. And so I would say in the workplace, we see a lot of trends where um, there will be an EAP program. There will sometimes be affinity groups or support groups on site and sometimes teleworking as well as um, other types of support that may be in-house. So, for example, some universities may have a geriatric care manager on staff that can help families navigate some of the care management. But you're right, we're, we're missing the ball. And part of where we're missing the ball is we, I, the first thing I would say, we don't give people an opportunity to reenter the workforce. So, you know, we can talk about accommodation all day long, when you're in the middle of it. But the second piece of that is after you've had to step out so that you can spend that time with your loved one, what does it look like to step back in? The second thing is a lot of, I mean, a lot of people offer bereavement leave, but really innovative companies. And and like, for example, our colleagues in Canada, they advocated to have support at during the advanced illness stage. And to me, it's, you know, it's good to be able to have time off to deal with the business of dying, but I think it's better to be able to have that time at the end so that you can make peace with that person and yeah. not have to worry about choosing between your job. Absolutely. And one of the things that Mike did when very close to the end for his dad was, was to take some leave from work. So he could do, ex- he could do exactly that. I'm a, I think of the possibility of having adult daycare centers in places of a, the larger places of employment to accommodate the caregivers the way we had um, daycare centers for children. Yeah, I, I think that is, I think the challenge there, I mean, I think the idea of having on-site accommodations, particularly for large employers, is a wonderful idea. Some of the challenges I think are a little different in that we really celebrate when somebody has a baby and there's cake and balloons and, 
you know, confetti and festivities, but, but we don't celebrate caregivers, um, you know, across the way. So, you know, if your adult child has a schizophrenic break or your family member gets diagnosed with dementia or someone is dying of cancer, there's no balloons and cakes. Not that there should be balloons and cakes, but it's not something that people feel comfortable identifying in the workforce because they're concerned about retaliation or they're concerned that it will impact their um, ability to continue to develop their career. And I think this is where frontline managers can be really helpful. AARP, as well as um, the EEOC, the Employment Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, they've got guidance on how to create family-friendly workplaces. And I think frontline managers and leadership have a role there to play in just modeling the behavior, you know, being courageous and saying, Caregiving is a natural part of our life, just like having a baby and being willing to take and use some of those caregiving specific benefits so that the other people that work there get that feeling of, okay, it's okay for me to do this. I mean, if your CEO won't do it, it will be hard to get people on your staff to do it. And so making sure you've got that commitment philosophically from the top down. Uh, uh, Kind of a little bit of a side question is what it, you're, you're also uh, have a legal background as a lawyer. How does the Family Medical Leave Act um, fit into caregiving? Uh, I know I've seen it where it's like, well, can't you get somebody else to take care of this person? Why do you have to do it? And I've seen that type of attitude personally uh, before I retired. Um, can you offer any advice or insights with the Family Medical Leave Act taking that um, medical, uh, that leave to be the caregiver at the end of life? Absolutely. The FMLA, I mean, the FMLA is uh, something that should allow people to take that leave. And one of the misconceptions about FMLA is that you have to take it all at one time. You should be able to take FMLA intermittently we're also seeing on a state-by-state basis more and more people taking that baseline FMLA, which is an unpaid leave benefit or right afforded by law, and putting on top of that the opportunity to take that as a paid leave benefit. So some employers offer it on their own, but in some states, such as New York and New Jersey, and recently even uh, the District of Columbia, among others, you have essentially the same way you would have unemployment you can elect to do paid family or medical leave. Now, I, when it comes back to sort of the workplace piece, this is where I think the culture is so important, that culture of um, care and saying that, you know, this is a, we value what people are doing as caregivers and we're not going to question the way that they take off or why they're taking off time. Now, I would say even for women, there's still, you know, there are still work environments in the U.S. where if you're pregnant, um, that's not welcome news to your boss. And I think it takes a little bit of evangelism. And that's where associations such as ours, I think, can also be helpful in providing resources to managers and explaining how some of these benefits might work. And the fact of the matter is the incidence of dementia, including early onset, which is younger um, people, is growing so fast 
there's going to have to be accommodations within the workplace because there's just going to be too many people who need that assistance. Absolutely. Well, and I, I think workplaces are aware of that because I, several, there's been several meetings and conferences in recent years where employers have said, we know we need to retain great workers and we know we need a way for caregivers to participate fully in the workforce and we're not really sure what to do. And this comes back to that piece of innovation. I think I shared with you when we were talking a couple of days ago, again, huge movie TV nerd. So I was watching Nine to Five with <laughs> Sally Parton and, yes. <laughs> and Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin. Um, I love musicals. So I'm watching this uh, and I get to the end and, you know, they come, they come through the big workplace and it's, you know, this movie where these women have taken over the workplace and they've kidnapped their boss. Again, would not recommend that, but they kidnap <laughs> their boss. They make it more family friendly. And I was sitting there going, oh, my gosh, like everything they're saying that we need to do is what we're still saying now 40 years later. Absolutely. Yes. And yet, <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> And, and you look at the utilization data of the benefits that employers offer and you look at, you know, it's only, I think, when you look at the SHRM data, 1% to 2% of employers are even offering some type of elder care benefit. And then you talk to companies that are offering those benefits and they say, well, nobody's using them or, you know, so I think that sense of cultural revolution that caregiving is just a, as much a part of our life as, you know, caregiving for babies, that still needs to happen. And and that's partially what's holding up some of the progress. So do you have a tip or maybe a suggestion for someone who's caring for someone, whether it be dementia or any other long-term illness where they're being called upon, you know, to be called out of work for a couple of days or suddenly being called home in the middle of the day and they're larger employee doesn't have any of this in place where they would start bringing it to their attention and how they would lay out what they need i would start with there's a coalition we've worked with that's done a lot of work with aarp called the react coalition and it stands for respect to caregivers time and they have a guidebook on promising practices in elder care for employers so i would take a look at that guidebook I would also sit, and they and they also have an infographic that I think is really helpful because it kind of paints a picture of this is what elder caregivers are going through. Um, I think it makes sense for the person to sit down though and also do a self-assessment. You know, for some people, they really want the time off so that they can be by the side of the person who's going through the illness. For other people, work offers respite and a chance to continue to engage in your own identity and your own goals. And um, and that's particularly true, you know, when we're thinking about people who maybe don't feel like they had a choice to take on that caregiving role. And so the accommodation you're asking for may not be just, I need the time off. It may be, I'm going through this family, I have this family responsibility, but I would love for you to, you know, help me on a telework schedule or you know, change my schedule so it's the same time every day so I can take this person to and from daycare or offer some of these other things. And I think that's where sometimes companies need someone to bring some imagination to the table 
one thing we did this year that was pretty successful is we offered a respite benefit. So it's so hard for people to, you know, out of their own salary, set aside money to, for respite to actually go on vacation or, or to take time off. But to have your employer say, you take the time you need and we'll reimburse the respite care had been uh, very successful for us. So I think there's opportunities there for people to think creatively and they need to sort of sit down and assess like, well, what is it I really need and what do I want out of my job or out of this work? This is absolutely wonderful information for our listeners. It is. It absolutely is. Now, this is a national alliance for caregiving. So that indicates to me that there's more than one entity involved. That's right. We have uh, 50 organizational members and they include not-for-profits, corporations, and federal agencies. So we try to it's a two-way conversation. We try to give them information about what we're seeing from our advocates, from the community, where there are gaps in the research or the advocacy. And then they come to us for expertise when they're designing programs or they're trying to understand how to reach different populations. And it's been um, a wonderful thing because while we may be experts in caregiving, we're not experts in every disease under the sun and we're not experts in every piece of the healthcare market. So rather than us try to conquer the world, we try to partner up with people who have expertise in those areas that we need. One of the things that you said that I absolutely wasn't aware of, and I had been a supervisor for a long time, was that the Family Medical Leave Act doesn't have to be taken all at once. I was absolutely under that impression. And I don't know where I got it, but like you said, it's pretty much common understanding. Well, I think a lot of people aren't aware that you can break it up. And the Department of Labor guidance talks about it's up to the employer's decision on that. And, um, and but what I would say is that when we think about these, I think the challenge that employers have, it's like, what do I have to do to be compliant with the law? Right. And not get in trouble. That's always how I think about it. It's like, what's the what minimum do I, have to I do that won't? Right. right. <laughs> what's the minimum? I don't want to get in trouble. Exactly. What's the minimum? Right. And then let's say I've met the minimum and now I want to, you know, sort of set myself apart. Like, okay, I'm, this really is a family friendly workplace. What can I do within the bounds of law or regulation? And then one step above that, what would be really innovative? And I think what's challenging for employers is it gets all mushed together because elder care doesn't have the same protection as parental leave. Right. And so it's, it's confusing when you're trying to administer it. Like, is this FMLA? Is this Americans with Disabilities Act? Like, where is it I need to play in the space? And I think the EEOC guidance is pretty helpful in that. And some of the Department of Labor information is helpful, but it's not. there's not really a place where you can find all that information at one time. It's interesting. Um, where I worked, it, down in Mahogany Row, right, uh, they're looking at it from the aspect of, well, they really don't have dedication to this organization. And me at the uh, supervisor level, uh, my attitude was, you can always get another job. You can't get another family. You need to go do and take care of your family and quit talking about it and get to stepping. And that was always my attitude. And I had um, three folks on my staff of 10 who had elderly parents that they were taking care of. And they would just come and say, Mike, 
my mom, I said, get going. Don't need to explain, go. And uh, unfortunately, I think your line managers have that attitude, but I think the upper management or the senior executives don't have that attitude. And that's what's sad. I think, well, I think you're right. I mean, I, I also think part of it is um, exposure. Like uh, you have to, the people who are executives that end up in that situation often have to exit and don't have a way back in. So it, anybody has difficulty, I think, understanding a situation that they don't have experience with. We hear that a lot in the caregiving world. If you have, if you haven't done it, you cannot possibly right. understand it. Grace, what drew you into the work that you're presently doing now with the National Alliance for Caregiving? I got interested in this work, strange in a strange way. I um, I went to LSU, go Tigers, and uh, <laughs> I my my very first job out of college, I sold subprime loans. For a financial institution right as that market was crashing, which was an adventure to say the least. But um, I, as I was selling these consumer loans, I realized a lot of my clients were people who were having difficulty paying for medical care or who were refinancing major assets like their house or their car in order to pay off medical debt. And it got me very interested in the field of elder care and understanding what the needs of, of seniors are. And in law school, I did some additional coursework around estate planning and disability law and, and out of law school got into health policy. And I think one thing that's attracted me about caregiving, everybody has some interaction with it. I, I mean, you can get in an Uber and be chatting with your Uber driver and they'll tell you that their grandpa had dementia and the challenges that their family had in managing that. You could be at a super fancy gala at a table with high profile people like Judy Woodruff from PBS NewsHour and she'll tell you about her experiences with caregiving. So it's something that really does touch almost every life and it has in the aggregate, a huge economic impact on our society. Absolutely. And it's only going to become more and more expensive as the needs, more and more people are involved in it. Um, our hospitals and our care facilities are going to be overwhelmed. When we spoke a couple of days ago, you mentioned an event at, at the White House and I would love it if you would share that story with our listeners because I think it'll really resonate with so many. Yeah. When I uh, so when I first moved to D.C., I grew up in Louisiana and Mississippi. Very country, um, small town girl. And I mean, I literally, at one point, my hair was so big it would not fit in that box in your driver's license picture. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... You know, I've moved to Washington. I'm still relatively new. I think I'd been here maybe two and a half years. And my predecessor, who founded the National Alliance for Caregiving, had has been in Washington a long time and been involved in a lot of events. And so we were invited to go to the White House for the unveiling of a new study on people who are caring for military veterans. And we were able to go and listen to at that time, First Lady Michelle Obama, um, Second Lady Dr. Jill Biden, as well as uh, Secretary or, or Elizabeth Dole, Senator Elizabeth Dole, 
and um, former First Lady Rosalind Carter. And it was an amazing event. And um, and this was my first time ever being inside the White House. And to be able to be in the room with those folks and, and all these, you know, it, it, it's a lot of pomp and circumstance. And so anyways, I was standing in the green room next to a caregiver who was being honored at the event. And we were eating snacks and looking out the window. And I said to her, it's crazy that, you know, we're inside the White House looking out at the tourists because usually, you know, we're the tourists out there with our nose up against the fence. And I just, I can't believe that we're here, like in the White House and, you know, shaking hands with the first lady and all this. And this woman who, who was an Elizabeth Dole fellow and, a, and uh, a caregiver for her spouse said to me, all I can think about is my husband back in the hotel room and how he's doing without me. Wow. And it just really grounded me in this work because it reminded me that, and, and this is very important too, I think, for anyone working in policymaking is, you know, you get starstruck by Senator so-and-so or events at the White House, and you forget sometimes that this is about real people and improving real people's lives. And to have her say that, to realize she's in the midst of this incredible honor that many Americans will never even get a chance to participate in. And yet she's so selfless that all she could think about was the person she was caring for. It has stuck with me uh, ever since we had that conversation. And I try to come back to that as a moment to really ground myself in the work we do here and to recognize what an honor it is to be able to advocate for other caregivers. Well, that situation of a woman, you know, being away from the person that she's caring for and all, that's all that she can think about is what's going on when she's not there is probably universal to caregivers. And the mention of Rosalind Carter, I'm sure you've heard that wonderful quote that from her that we repeat over and over again. There's only four types of people in this world caregivers, those who will become caregivers, those who have been caregivers, and those who are going to need care. And that's becoming more real every single day. Absolutely. And it's funny, the Rosalind Carter Institute, they held, a, they brought on a new executive director. They had a big summit a couple months ago. And, um, you know, the Carters, they're an amazing couple. But, you know, Rosalind Carter is so committed to this issue. And, so thoughtful about the way that they're engaging and raising visibility. And I think that comes back to this, how do we shift the way people think about caregiving? And so having voices like hers and, and Elizabeth Doles and others, it's just incredible to see the work that they're doing as champions. Grace, as we wind up this episode of, of Roger That, what is the one thing that you would say to our caregiver listeners out there? One piece of advice. One piece of advice. So I would say acceptance. One thing we see time and time again is that caregiving, fundamentally, it's about sort of this action of what does it mean when you say, you know, till death to us part? Or what does it mean when you say, I'll love you forever? What's the action associated with that? And people experience a lot of confusing emotions. Sometimes you feel thankful or you feel filled with honor for being able to live out your values and support this person. And sometimes you're irritated or tired or frustrated or angry, or you're angry at what the disease has done to your family. 
or you feel embarrassed. And I think it's important to remember that that's normal. That's a a natural part of the caregiving process. And what research shows us time and time again is that most caregivers are coming out of that process with a sense of resilience and meaning and purpose. And so my advice would be accept what's going on and and acknowledge that you're really carrying a heavy load. And also, I think, find a moment to celebrate that with the other person that you're caring for in whatever way makes sense for where you are now in the journey. That That is definitely what happened to, in our situation, you know, at the end of our caregiving experience, I dove straight into supporting other caregivers. And I consider my father-in-law, Roger, who this show is named after, to have been the most important teacher in my lifetime. I mean, I'm totally biased, but I'm convinced that caregiving has touched everything from major world events, uh, you know, to movies and shows and the way we interact with each other one-on-one. And not every person can be a caregiver. And I think that's okay, too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But if you take it on, I mean... I just think those of us who are not caregivers are not naturally inclined to be um, that type of caring, giving personality. Our job is to advocate for the caregiver who wouldn't even think to ask that they need help for themselves. Absolutely agree. Grace, thank you so much for taking your time to, to be with us today and to talk to our listeners. We really, really appreciate it and wish you nothing but the best. Yes, thank you. It was great to talk with you. Thank you so much. So interesting um, points that were brought up, and she talked about the anticipatory grief, and I found that rather interesting, that you do go through a grieving period before um, the the terminal end, and then you have the post-grief also, three stages of grief. I found that very, very interesting. And also that the there's an organization out there called REACT, respect a caregiver's time, that was uh, kind of an aha moment to me that uh, you can get some support there. And what I really found interesting was that there's a coalition of all these different organizations working um, together for policy and change. And that is invaluable. I know when we were going through it um, close to 20 years ago now that uh, – we really didn't understand what resources were there, and now there's many, many more resources. You're absolutely right. You can find a link to the National Association for Caregiving on our show website at rogerthat.show. This has been Roger That, and I'm Bobby. And I'm Mike. And we are dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. So please, subscribe to the show, go to iTunes and post a review, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Let us know how we can help, or if you have a question you'd like for us to address, or if you just want to say hi, please do. To find out more about us or where Bobby will be speaking next, head over to rogerthat.show. That's roger, R-O-D-G-E-R, that.show. Missing Link is a proud partner of Hearing Charities of America, a nonprofit organization that supports those who are deaf or hard of hearing. You can find out more about HCA on our website, or go to hearingcharities.org. 
Roger That is produced by Missing Link, a media podcast company dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content.